verses 17 through 29. We are a church, Christ Presbyterian Church, is a church being built on the foundation of God's Word. Every week, there's a reason we open God's Word to hear Him speak to us. We believe that Scripture is the inerrant Word of God. Every week, we look at our world, the world around us in 2020, through the lens of God's Word. What a great help and blessing that is. This is the fifth message in this series on Elijah. Why Elijah? Why thus far... 1 Kings 16.29 through 18.29 because it's God's word to a culture very much like ours. The great God war. This morning we look at the impotent gods. Before we do, let's pray and ask him to teach us in the power of his spirit this morning. Let's pray together. Our Father, we ask this morning as we open your word that you would teach us. John Sartell cannot teach so that it will make any difference in our lives. No man who stands behind this desk in and of himself can teach that way. And so we pray once more again this morning, as always, that we would hear your voice in our hearts that you would continue to change us from the inside out. And just maybe, some of us for the first time. Father, to you, to your Son and to the Holy Spirit, be all the glory. Draw near to us that we may draw near to you. Speak to us that we might hear in Jesus' name. Amen. Many commentaries on 1 Kings 18 refer to the confrontation between Elijah and the prophets of Baal. And by the way, all my life, every minister that I've ever heard preach has called B-A-A-L, Baal. And that may be 
uh, what uh, he was called. But the weight of the evidence today says that it was pronounced by all, which is what Tyler was doing. So Tyler has taught me uh, this. Uh, he didn't say anything to me about it graciously, but that's what we'll call him now instead of Bailey. As I said, many commentaries refer to this confrontation between Elijah and the prophets of Baal as the God War. A war between the God of Israel and Baal, the major God in the, Can in the Canaanite pantheon. In reality, it was not a war between God and Baal. Baal was not there to fight. Why? Because, very simply, he did not exist. If I see you this week and you ask how I am and I tell you I'm having a hard day, I am, I am fighting the little blue men from the moon. What would you say to me? Besides, John, I think I need to take you. What would you say to me? John, you could not be fighting the little blue men from the moon because they do not exist. Baal did not exist. But there was a war indeed. The God who was there had declared war in his judgment on the northern kingdom of Israel. He does that. We need to remember especially now. He raises up nations. and He brings nations to reckoning. And to justice. Specifically, he declared war on the house of Ahab and Jezebel. As they had led Israel astray, introducing the worship of Baal to Israel. King Ahab, we've seen this, King Ahab had married the Sidonian princess Jezebel. She was the daughter of Ethbaal, the king of Sidon. She was a priestess in the temple of Baal and had, and had imported the worship of Baal into Israel. She had brought 450 prophets of Baal to Israel. Now, Israel was very small. Think about introducing, introducing 450 prophets or ministers into half the state of Tennessee. That would have an impact. They have built a temple to Baal in Samaria. So there was no real name, God named Baal with whom Yahweh, the God of Israel, could battle. But he could do battle with Ahab, with Jezebel, and to the people of Israel who had proved unfaithful. And by the way, this war did not begin on Mount Carmel. We saw in these last few Sundays, it began three years earlier. Look at 1 Kings 17.1. Now Elijah the Tishbite, the Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, as God the Lord, the God of Israel lives. And by the way, you'll see that over and over again. And the reason the writer was putting the God who lives, the God who lives, the God who lives, it was because Baal did not live. He was drawing his distinction just by that word you won't underline it. 
God said through Elijah, Ahab, it will not rain until I tell it to rain, except by my word. Why did God specifically use withholding rain in his judgment on Israel? We've seen previously that God had told Israel when they entered the land hundreds of years before, what did he tell them? If you forsake me, if you go after the Canaanite gods, I will bring a drought. I'll stop the rain and I will bring famine. But there was another reason. God chose drought instead of another type of judgment. He could have brought a foreign nation against him, but he didn't do that. Baal was the storm god, the rain god in the Canaanite pantheon. He and his consort Asherah were also the god and goddess of fertility. They made both land and mankind fertile. In the drought, in the ensuing drought, of course, there were no crops. The land could not produce. It became what? Infertile. You can just see Ahab and Jezebel. Put yourself there. Real life. You can just see Ahab and Jezebel going up to this temple to Baal in Samaria with their entourage, praying for rain, praying for the famine to end, praying for their storm god to bring the rain to produce grain in the fields and grapes in the vineyard. But they were praying. They were talking to gods who were not there, who did not exist. After three years, when the land was parched and dry with dust, God said to Elijah, Elijah, go show yourself to Ahab. Tell him, I'm going to send the rain. God, Yahweh, will send the rain. Look in 1 Kings 18.1. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. In the third year, the third year of the famine, saying, go, show yourself to Ahab and I will send rain on the earth. Question, why didn't God just send rain after Elijah announced it? Why go through this confrontation at Mount Carmel? Had not God already defeated Baal? He had thrown down the gauntlet. He had said, okay, Baal, I'm going to stop the rain. You started. You're the storm god, Baal. You bring the rain. He had already proven Baal was lifeless. Baal was impotent. But if God had simply sent the rain, the followers of Baal would have claimed that Baal sent the rain. They would have said, you know, he's awakened. He's become aware of our awful plight. He's taken away the rain. No, there had to be some sort of public confrontation that would completely eradicate the followers of Baal Eradicate the possibility of the followers of Baal claiming Baal had sent the rain. That's why God told Elijah to show yourself to Ahab. It's why Elijah said to Ahab, gather the prophets of Baal. You come, you bring the prophets, but also bring the people of Israel. Baal had to be publicly humiliated and proven to be a false god. But God was also addressing the unbelief 
and unfaithfulness of Israel. In fact, you can't miss this. What was the first thing Elijah did? When everyone arrived at Mount Carmel, did he speak to Ahab? Did he speak to the prophets? No, he spoke first to the people of Israel. Look at it. 1 Kings 18, 21. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, then follow him. And all the people did not answer him a word. They, they would not affirm. Did you see that? In the people, he spoke to the people of Israel. That was the first thing he did. You see, this was facing Israel with their unbelief, with their unfaithfulness. And they, when they people saw Elijah, they knew him. He was the prophet, the mighty prophet of all of Israel. And the people would not affirm their faith in God. He pictures the people of Israel in in speaking to them as trying to have the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and also the God of the Canaanites. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, think about it, had brought them out of slavery, out of an awful slavery. They hadn't raised a sword. They hadn't thrown a spear. God had completely done this. He had given them water and manna and quail in the wilderness. He had brought them into a land, a land of plenty, and given them victory after victory after victory. And yet they remained silent when Elijah challenged them to faith. One commentator said that they had bought into the Monroe Doctrine, not the doctrine of the the well-known doctrine of President James Monroe, doctrine of Marilyn Monroe. Marilyn Monroe was once asked, did she believe in God? And she answered with these words, I just believe in everything a little bit. That's the way the people of God were. They liked some things about Yahweh and they liked some things about Baha. They were limping between two opinions, between two gods. Sometimes their favorite was Baal. Sometimes their favorite was Yahweh. They believed in everything a little bit. Question. After all God had done for Israel, what was the temptation of Baal and Asher? We tend to look at this as primitive. We tend to look at this as Why would this appeal to anyone? People, this speaks to us about our culture and our God. I want to answer the question. Why were they drawn to Baal and Asher? First, the political and cultural elite in the northern kingdom made following Baal popular. That was the thing to do in Israel. Think about it. Ahab and Jezebel were the power couple. They were the, they were the power celebrities of their day. Baal was their religion. This was the religion of the powerful cultures in the area. The great, great cities of Tyre and Sidon. 
were devoted to Baal. If they went to those cities, Baal was everywhere in his symbols. Think about it this way. Some of you don't remember this, but some of you are close enough to my age that you remember it. What happened in 1967, in 1968, when the Beatles embraced the teaching of Maharishi, the Eastern guru on transcendental meditation? What happened? It affected all of the United States, all of Europe. It became cool. It became hip. It was popular to adhere to Eastern religions. It affects us to this day. It was popular. The elite are doing it. It's cool. You think think those words don't affect what we do every week? What's popular? What's current? What? What's everyone else doing? That was the first reason. That was the first, what drew Israel first. Secondly, the worship of Baal and Asherah was a long tradition in that part of the world. Before the ascendancy of Tyre and Sidon, there had been a great city and civilization just north of Tyre and Sidon. It was the city and civilization of Ugarit. Baha'u worship was central to the cult of Ugarit. So we're talking about centuries upon centuries upon centuries. This religion was a part of the spiritual DNA of that region. It was tradition. Thirdly, Baal seemed so relevant to their lives. He was the rain god. He was a storm god that brought the rain that provided rain and olive oil. Vineyards and wine. He was the God who made the land fertile and made men made men potent. And his consort Ashua brought fertility to women. His was the religion that scratched where people itched. Finally, fourthly, Baal had sex appeal. Sexual ceremonies were built into the liturgy of their region. If one's marriage was lacking, there was always the male or female prostitutes down at the temple. I preached about this one time in in a congregation where we were having a building fund. And this elder came into me after and said, you know, we might consider doing that to raise money for our building fund. That's what drew Israel to Baal. And we still tend to say we don't bow down to anyone like Baal. Folks, if you study this religion, Baal's religion institutionalized many of our own personal gods we worship daily. If we break down the religion of Baal, we see the love and worship of self, our own egos, of sex, of power, material wealth. 
This is one reason I wanted to take a closer look at this idolatry. It's not that different from our own idolatry. It's not that different from what's happening in this country. If each of us wrote down this morning, in all honesty, we sat down in where we are right now. And we're asked to write down our primary first loves in our lives. What has challenged God? What has challenged Jesus in our lives? What would those first five be? It would be about ego. It would be about self. It would be about our own families. It would be about money, personal popularity, success, fame. And we're Christians. What would be the first loves of our culture? We're much closer to institutionalized Baal worship than we know. Idolatry, we've seen this before. Idolatry usually takes what God has made, what God has created. It's not evil. There are things God has created that's good. But we take those things and make it our first love above all else. We give the we ought to give to God. There's a verse you ought to memorize. In Romans 1.25. If you haven't already memorized it, please memorize this verse. Romans 1.25. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. God is the maker and giver of self, of our own egos of children, of parents, of husbands, of wives, of money, success, power, athletics. God made all of those. And we have the proclivity to take the things God has made and give them the love that God deserves. Will God allow us to believe a little bit of everything? Will he allow us to take those things and without comment bring them into our lives and worship them? No. He cares about that. What's the first commandment? Look at Exodus 20, verse 2. Very first commandment. What is the first commandment? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. In our context, he says, I am the Lord your God who made you, who sustained you, who redeemed you. You shall have no other gods before me. He mentions, don't go to idolatry. Don't bring those gods in. I will not give up my position for the gods you create. Again, what did Elijah say? This is what it was about. This is what did the people of Israel, what did Elijah say to the people of Israel at Carmel? This is the very first thing. Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go on limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is God, then follow him. And then that sad sentence, and the people did not answer him a word. God was saying, you must, through Elijah, you must choose between Baal and me. You've got to choose. I will not share my position. They were trying to make God share his throne, to share his position with a God that didn't even exist. Time and again, this had happened in Israel's history. And I thought back about it this week. Remember when Moses was on Sinai? And he had been gone a long time and the people became afraid that he had gotten lost, that he had died up there on the mountain. 
They said, we've got to go back to Egypt. And, and they took their gold and they made an idol that they had seen in Egypt. They made a golden calf and they were worshiping. And here comes Moses from the very presence of the transcendent God. What a scene. And he walks into the people of Israel bowing down, not to the God he had seen, but to a, a calf, an idol. An image of a calf. And what did Moses say? Moses immediately said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. Come stand with me if you're on the Lord's side. He immediately made them choose. What were the last words of Joshua when he was dying? He spoke to all of Israel. Usually what a person, especially a great man like Joshua, the greatest man of his day, what did he have to say? His last words to Israel. Look at it in Joshua 24, 14. Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served. This is his last message. This is his advice for the put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt. Put away and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, Choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Israel, give up the idols. Serve God. That was the challenge. In the New Testament, John the Apostle is writing a precious letter to a precious church. How is he in the letter? What were his last words in the letter? 1 John 5, 21. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Don't we dare today. Don't we don't dare today say, I, I don't have that problem. Why is it said over and over and over again? Sometimes our culture has said to us, it doesn't matter what you believe if you're just sincere in your faith. Well, look at the intensity and sincerity of the prophets of Baal as they called upon their God. Read it. Look at it. 1 Kings 18, 26. But they took the bull that was given and they prepared it and they called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice. Look at the emphasis of that. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. At noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he's musing, thinking, or he's relieving himself. In other words, he might have gone to the men's room. Or he's on a journey. Or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of oblation. But there was no voice and no one answered and no one paid attention. There were two stunning things that day. The very silence of the people when, when Elijah said, how long? Well, you've lived between these two gods. And they didn't say a thing. That silence was deafening, but a silence that was more deafening is when you see all this commotion, all this worship, all this intensity, all this sincerity. 
No one answered. No one paid attention. Whatever your God is, if he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, that God does not exist. And he will indeed be silent. I received a call late one Saturday evening. A young man who had lived in our small town in Virginia had been in an awful, awful wreck. The hospital to which he was taken was an hour away. When I arrived, I discovered the man had a serious, the young man had a serious brain injury. The doctors were doing all they could, but their prognosis did not leave any hope. The father was well known in our small community. He had worked hard, very hard, and become successful, become wealthy. He did not come from money. He had a poor background as far as money was concerned. His goal had always been to make money. It was not hard to see his success. It was not hard to see that success and money had been the driving actors of his life. Oh, he came to church occasionally, infrequently at best. And in the wee hours of the morning, I heard him make for Lord. All my money will not save him. He was crying out for help. And his idol was impotent. When death did come, his idol had no words of comfort. His idol had no way to dry his tears. That happens with idols. 